All right, peeps, well, on today's episode of the Kung Fu Genius, the genius will be answering all sorts of hot nonsense from YouTube, sometimes with the help of ChatGPT. Lots of gems, lots of who would win in a fight, Bruce Lee versus Muhammad Ali, lots of, really, guys, that's what you wanted me to ask ChatGPT? Let's get to it. And every day, I practice martial arts. Watch out. Hey everyone, well, it's me again for another special episode of the Kung Fu Genius. Again, unfortunately, without Dre and without Mikey. Uh, some of you guys said you actually like these episodes. I, uh, I'll, of course, respect that and do these for you guys. Um, but I much prefer to actually have someone to talk to. I just feel like I'm literally talking to myself in a room for about an hour, which is basically what I am doing. Um, but uh, because I'm going to be traveling and teaching a number of seminars... I have to get a bunch of episodes filmed to make sure that we have an episode for you guys every week. And that's the reason why occasionally I have to do some of these solo ones because Mikey's like traveling all over the world right now. Dre is like an international man of mystery. So for me to line up with them, it's like, you know, all the uh, all the planets have to line up in order for us to get together in one room. And uh, usually we can only do that about once a week. But sometimes my schedule requires me to be out of town, so I have to shoot a few extra episodes. So here you go. We put out a call a few weeks ago for people uh, to ask me questions to ask chat GPT. So that AI chatbot thing that everyone is using nowadays uh, to ask it questions about Wing Chun and uh, or perhaps about Bruce Lee. And to um, see if, uh, from my perspective at least, uh, the answer is uh, truthful or makes sense or whatever. Now, um, we didn't get too many people asking those questions. I think people, more people came up to me personally uh, and said, hey, you should uh, ask ChatGPT this, than actually wrote in the comments. So uh, there's a couple here. I'll, I'll go ahead and ask them. And um, we'll see what we can get out of that. And of course, in future episodes, uh, if you guys have other uh, suggestions to ask ChatGPT, go ahead and put those in the comments below. So as always, if you want to support the Kung Fu Genius, the best way to support the Kung Fu Genius is on Patreon. That's uh, patreon.com slash the Kung Fu Genius. For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to episodes early, usually a few days before the episode comes out. I have my Instagram subscriber reels on there, a bunch of other goodies, higher levels of support, get all sorts of different things, including chats with me in your own private episode. Uh, so yeah, that's the best way to support us. That's patreon.com. The link for that is below. Also, all my books, uh, my new wooden dummy book, Chi Sao books, the books on the various forms of Wing Chun, uh, online tutorials, all that kind of stuff. All of that is in the uh, uh, in the description below. Uh, so let's uh, get to it. So um, this whole chat GPT thing has really taken... Um, you know, people by storm because uh, obviously there are a lot of concerns about the future of AI and what this stuff means. But for now, uh, I think that as long as it's used kind of in this way, uh, basically some kind of enhancement uh, for a uh, search engine, then it's okay. It's just when Skynet decides to enslave all of us, then uh, yeah, then we might have a little bit of an issue. So Let's go ahead and see the very first one here on ChatGPT. And what I might actually do is take some of the regular questions that we get and then um, ask ChatGPT first, and then I'll answer it myself. Okay, 
So um, we did have a question here uh, from my man, Simon Chu, uh, and uh, it is a Dreisen-related question. So it is very specific uh, to uh, this podcast, and it was about what is the relationship between uh, Dre, Dr. Eisen, and Dreisen. For those of you who've been listening to our podcast for a while, uh, you might have an idea of what we're talking about here. Uh, this is, uh, you know, occasionally Dre gets these super annoying questions from uh, these various guys who suspiciously have names very similar to Dre himself. Uh, so let's go ahead and see. I just want to make sure that I get the question correct. All right, so this question is a little bit of a silly one. Uh, like I said, it's from Simon Chu. It's a chat GPT question. Is there a connection between Dre Eisen, Dreisen, and Dr. Eisen? So let me go ahead and type this one in. I don't think chat GPT has a chance to answer this. So I'm just going to add on the Kung Fu Genius podcast just to hopefully get some information. I don't think it's going to be able to say anything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is pretty funny. Okay. It says, I'm not familiar with the specific context of the Kung Fu Genius, but based on the names you provided, it is possible that Dre Eisen, Dr. Eisen, and Dreisen are all the same person or related in some way. See? So ChatGPT, even not knowing about the Kung Fu Genius podcast, which is a little bit disappointing in and of itself, still speculates that these three people might be the same. Without more information, I can only speculate. Dre could be a nickname for someone named Andre or Adrian, while doctor might indicate the person holds a doctoral degree. Uh, somehow, I doubt that in this specific case. Eisen could be a surname, and Dreisen could be a combination of the person's first and last names. Hmm. Again, without more information, it's difficult to say uh, for sure whether these names refer to the same person or if there is any connection between them. Very good. Um, I want to ask you a question here because... Uh, some people um, came up to me, but they didn't write it down, but they asked me to ask ChatGPT um, about the history of Wing Chun, right? Now, I can imagine because uh, these, um, these AI bots, they basically work as kind of like an aggregate collector of things on uh, the internet. So it's not like it's super discerning. It's just going to take a little bit from here and there and things that sound plausible and spit out some kind of response. So... Um, what is the history of Wing Chun? And I'll spell it in the standard way, C-H-U-N, so as to not get into any lineage-specific uh, answers here. What is the history of Wing Chun? All right, here we go. All right, uh, not too bad. All right, so it starts with Wing Chun is a Chinese martial art that originated in the southern province of Guangdong. Mm, pretty good. And has a rich and complex history. Absolutely. The exact origins of Wing Chun are debated, but the most widely accepted version of its history are as follows. Okay. So pretty good. Right, right before chat GPT gets into it, it already has a <clears throat> throat clearing about, you know, these things are debated, but this is the most widely accepted version. Now, I would I would perhaps cast say say this a little bit differently. Say the wi most widely accepted version, because it's, spoiler alert, it's about to get into the whole Mui, you know, Yim Wing Chun story. I would say it's the most widely told version of history. I don't know if it's actually accepted. I don't know how many uh, Wing Chun Sifus who really care at all about the history of this style really actually believe it. It's probably the most widely told version of our history, but I don't know if I don't know how really accepted it is. I I, I don't know if um, 
real critical thinking people can actually believe this story is true. So it says, according to legend, Wing Chun was developed by a Buddhist nun named Moi during the Qing Dynasty, which was from 1644 to 1912 in China. Uh, of course, they can't give you a date on when uh, Moi supposedly founded the style because, well, uh, more likely than not, Moi and Yim Wing Chun, these are just fairy tale characters that have been inserted into some pocket of history. They've been, as we say, euhemerized, where you make uh, fairy tale characters or fictitious characters and you plop them into actual history and you tell the story enough times and then suddenly these people really existed in history. Um, but it's interesting that no one can actually tell you the date that Moi or Yim Wing Chun met because this is all pardon my French, made-up bullshit. Moi was said to have been one of the five elders, a group of Shaolin monks who survived the burning of the Shaolin temple by the Qing uh, government. This is uh, definitely a very widely um, told version of this story. Um, of course, there are lots of issues with the existence of a southern Shaolin temple even to begin with. Um, and, you know, that opens up a whole other can of worms where women actually allowed to be at a monastery okay monasteries for monks so you have you have like a regular temple which you just go for religious ceremonies and no one lives there but when you have a temple where people live you have a monastery where the monks live and you have a nunnery where the nuns live right and this is one thing that kind of gets thrown into the soup like uh, no one's gonna mention anything about a female being at a monastery and now of course it's not that they were not female buddhist um nuns but they would normally be in a nunnery all right they wouldn't be with the other monks especially not at that time uh, you know think about how uh unbelievably conservative people were especially in sexual uh, uh matters at that time and th this would not occur this is already a huge red flag for this story that there was a nun packed in with these monks, right? Um, Mui is said to have adapted and refined her martial arts knowledge into a new system that was suitable for a smaller, weaker person to defend themselves against a larger, stronger opponent. So, um, you know, what's what's interesting is that um, they're almost like um, uh, historical apologists uh, in in Wing Chun when it comes to this story. They say things like, well... The story itself is probably not true, uh, to which I would say, you know, it is overwhelmingly probable that this story is not true, but it's about the meaning. It's about the story. So now we've gotten to the point where um, we can no longer really state these things as facts because it's pretty obvious. The story doesn't pass the smell test. Uh, there's not enough corroboration outside of uh, these hearsays, you know, the fact that you heard it from your Sifu and your Sifu heard it from their Sifu and their Sifu taught it to their Sifu uh, doesn't mean that the story is true. I mean, just think about any story um, that is told to you that happened recently by someone. They're already going to add their own spin to it, their own way of looking at it. Um, think about the way you might even retell a story where you might want to punch it up to make it more um, interesting uh, to, you know, whoever your audience is, um, or you might have seen it from a perspective that someone else didn't see it. So when these stories get told, they're always getting told through the filter of whoever the storyteller is. And we have to somehow believe that uh, a martial art that potentially could have been designed 200, let's say 200, three, even 300 years ago, that that oral history has been preserved perfectly by human beings 
by telling this story. Uh, we all know the game of telephone. You have 20 people in a line. I have uh, a, a short phrase like, you know, um, you know, three monks drink water. And I whisper that to the first one, three monks drink water. That person whispers it to the next person, whispers it to the next person. And by the time you're 20 people down, when they get to the end and they say something, they say, what did you hear? It's always different than what the first person said because people mishear things. People assume that the person's about to say something. So they listen already with a certain type of filter, pick up words that they think they hear even when those words are not said. And that's in real time in the same room, okay? And now how is it even remotely possible that a story that's been told and retold over time from teacher to student, from this person to that person, over a couple hundred years is coming to you with all the details intact, all right? If you believe that you have a, you have a little bit of a comprehension issue in terms of how these things are working, uh, or how these things work, I should say. Uh, Mui taught this system to a young woman named Yim Wing Chun who used it to defend herself against a local warlord uh, because that warlord wouldn't have just, you know, taken Yim Wing Chun by force using, I don't know, weapons or a small army, all right? Uh, no, he's going to have a fist-fighting duel with a female, and that then when he's defeated, he's not going to be butthurt and take her anyway. He's going to be like, oh, okay, fine, and then ride off into the sunset as a loser. The story's ridiculous, all right? Um, it's uh, it's really ridiculous. If you If you go to this idea that, okay, a nun had to teach martial arts to a female so that she could defend herself against, you know, someone who's trying to kind of bully his way into her life. Uh, and then this being a parable for uh, Wing Chun being a style that's meant to be used against someone who's bigger and stronger. I can see that. But the problem is that um, as, as we know this through throughout history is that when we rely too heavy on parables to tell stories, or I should say when we rely like, too heavily on parables to tell a, teach a lesson, um, there we run the risk of making people think that the history of this parable has to be true in order for the, the theme that we're trying to express to be true. And it's okay if we read modern fiction, we know it's fiction and they have lots of uh, lessons to be learned from there, but there's a problem with much older fiction, especially a, just a story like this, is that it comes housed with the idea, well, this also happened, and it's teaching you the lesson that Wing Chun is a style designed to fight against bigger, stronger attackers. And that's where you run into problems, because there's there almost needs to be some type of belief in the historicity of this story for that parable, for that that the lesson to be legitimized. And what I'm saying is we can believe that um, our Wing Chun or the Wing Chun that we teach should work for a smaller, weaker person fighting someone bigger and stronger. And that is just, we take that almost as axiomatic to our style, most martial arts styles. And this is where sometimes I look at Wing Chun people uh, uh, as, in, in kind of a funny way where they think that they're the only style that claims this. Name me a style that says that, that that doesn't have some type of line about using their opponent's force or not fighting strength on strength or using leverage or using some intelligent tactic or some special technology to overcome an opponent. Find me a style that says we simply 
uh, we simply try to overcome an opponent with brute force. Now, a lot of styles actually do that in practice, um, but for the most part, most styles have some kind of line in there about, well, you know, if you apply this style intelligently, you know, then it is not about strength on strength, or you are able to perhaps beat someone bigger and stronger than you. Um, Wing Chun is not unique in that claim, and I wish Wing Chun people would stop thinking that, like, when we say uh, Wing Chun is designed to fight against bigger, stronger attackers, as if that somehow a majority of the other martial arts styles out on the market aren't also claiming the same thing. This is not a unique claim at all. So I think that we can just take it as axiomatic that, yeah, I mean, we are trying to help people be able to defend themselves regardless of who's standing in front of them. And that lesson might be, this guy's simply just too big, too aggressive for you to handle. You need to know that through training, what your limits are and know that, well, in this situation, I probably shouldn't engage because my practice and training has kind of indicated to me that I might have trouble handling a guy of this size or this level of aggression. And that's why realistic training also shows you your limits. And it's okay to look at someone and go, mm, yeah, I don't think I can do anything against that guy. That's realistic. That's honest. And I think any good martial arts should teach you that. And I think we can teach these lessons without having to house them in legendary mythical stories. I think uh, I think it's time that Wing Chun people kind of gave this up a little bit and we could say, well, this is the old story. Um, it's There's not a shred of evidence to suggest that it's true, but we do in fact, you know, try to teach or present our martial art in a way that uh, can work against, you know, someone who's maybe bigger and stronger than you, um, but there are always limits to that um, no matter how good you are. And I think we don't need to rely on the power of parable to tell this because then you always get into the idea of, well, if the, the story is teaching you this lesson, then there has to be some truth in the story uh, beyond the trope of being able to fight bigger, stronger people. And there's really nothing in this story that pans out. So I would really suggest Wing Chun people to kind of shit can telling people this story. Um, so, uh, to continue, Moi taught the system to a young, young woman named Yim Wing Chun, who used it to defend herself against a local warlord. Yim Wing Chun later taught the system to her husband, Leung Bok Chow, who named it after her. Those, these are all common stories. The system was then passed down through a series of instructors, including Leung Lang Kwai, Wong Wa Bo, Leung Yi Tai. It was further refined and developed by a renowned martial artist named Yip Man, so they kind of skipped Leung Chan in there, who taught it to many students, including the famous actor and martial artist Bruce Lee. Today, Wing Chun is practiced all over the world and many different lineages and has many different lineages and variations. It is known for its close range combat techniques, centerline theory, and use of trapping and simultaneous attack and defense. So yeah, this comes off a little bit like a Wikipedia entry, all right? There's nothing really controversial in here, but there's nothing really um, super truthful either. All right, now I'm gonna go see what else we have to ask chat GPT. So if you're not local to NYC, one of the easiest ways for you to improve your Wing Chun training is to train online with me. Online private training is tailored toward the individual and geared towards serious practitioners who want to improve their skills or knowledge base. 
I offer two private lesson subscriptions, twice a month and four times a month. Kung Fu Genius listeners use the code KFG online to get one online consultation lesson free with the purchase of any subscription. That code and the links are in the description below. Online private training is a convenient way for you to ask any of the questions you've had about application, form, theory, or even how to teach. Bring a partner to train with you online at absolutely no extra cost. I'll show you how to train with your partner online. Again, use the code KFG online to get a free consultation lesson with the purchase of any online subscription. Links are in the description below, and I'll see you online. Ah, here's another one. Who would win in a fight, Bruce Lee or Muhammad Ali? Ridiculous. Who would win in a fight? Let's go between Bruce Lee and Muhammad Ali. Let's see what ChatGPT says to this uh, beat-to-death topic. Hey, ChatGPT is coming out with a very thorough answer. Okay, here we go. It's impossible to say who would win in a fight between Bruce Lee and Muhammad Ali because they were both legendary athletes in very different sports. Bruce Lee was a master of martial arts while Muhammad Ali was a world champion boxer. Fair enough. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who uh, have a tendency to doubt some of the things that are is in um, the, uh, the Robert Klaus book uh, about uh, making of Enter the Dragon. Um, but uh, there is some stuff in there about Bruce Lee saying like, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, look at look look at my tiny hands. I mean, what would I do against someone like Muhammad Ali? And and I I have a feeling also based on the phone conversation between Bruce Lee and uh, uh, Dan Daniel Lee, his student, which we covered in an episode, I think all the way back in season one. So if you want to listen to the Bruce Lee Daniel Lee recordings, I think we did one or two, uh, maybe even three episodes on that topic. Um, what I did was I listened to the phone conversation and then Dre and I kind of chatted about the different things he was saying. And one of the things that's really clear in that conversation is the, um, with two things actually. One, the respect that Bruce Lee had for boxing. Uh, and again, this is at a time when most martial artists, um, let's just say karate practitioners in the 60s and 70s, um, we're kind of dismissive of boxing because, oh, well, boxing only uses the hands. And, you know, in karate, for example, I can use my hands and my feet and my elbow and all these other things. And so it's kind of the the, the argument from the number of tools you have at your disposal. Right. And so there is a uh, there is an argument to be had for the number of tools you have at your disposal uh, when everyone is allowed to use all of the different tools. Uh, so for example, you look at something like mixed martial arts and the best athletes in mixed martial arts, um, nowadays tend to have a, uh, a even skill set among all the different categories, striking, wrestling, submission, kickboxing, uh, and, you know, striking kind of both boxing and kickboxing. Uh, they tend to be a little even, like you have to have skill sets in all four of those disciplines. But then different fighters, based on their background, are going to be a little bit more on the grappling side, a little more on the jiu-jitsu side, a little more on the striking side. But it's impossible to be successful in MMA at the highest levels without having each of those kind of four categories somewhat filled up with some skills. 
Um, and then within those different skills, the more tools you have at your disposal, the, the number, the, the more angles you have to use your different strikes and footwork and different options, the ability to uh, do takedowns or to hold someone to the ground or for go to submissions, the more tools you have at your disposal, uh, the more successful uh, you can be. Now, specialists still do very well in uh, mixed martial arts, but even those specialists still have to have those other skill sets somewhat accounted for. But that is a, assuming that the two athletes can kind of use everything at their disposal. So you have two athletes, they can punch, kick, grapple, and go to the ground. When we um, get into specialist sports, then it's almost always the case of the specialist in that sport is going to beat the person who's not a specialist in that sport. So we can uh, very easily see, for example, Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather. All right. At that time, Conor McGregor was really at the top of his game in mixed martial arts. His, you can make an argument that he's now since backslid a little bit in terms of, you know, he's probably past his peak at this point. But at that time, he was really good. And uh, he had a fight with arguably one of the best boxers. Uh, to ever do it, um, especially in modern history. And you see, while he did get a couple licks in and he was able to kind of stand there longer than most people probably thought he was able to, um, when Floyd Mayweather basically wanted the fight to end, Floyd Mayweather ended it. And if you put Floyd Mayweather in a mixed martial arts cage, uh, we know that not only would it have gone the other way for Conor McGregor, but in way shorter time because Connor would have been able to use all of these tools at his disposal, not just the hands, but the legs and the takedown. I mean, if he took, you know, Connor McGregor is not known as a high level grappler by any stretch of the imagination, but if Connor McGregor took down Floyd Mayweather and held him on the ground, he would look like an absolute jujitsu whiz compared to Floyd Mayweather. And that's kind of what would happen when you have all the tools at your disposal. But when you specialize, it's going to be dangerous. So if we're talking about Bruce Lee versus Muhammad Ali in a boxing match, um, I think Bruce Lee would be the first person to say that that would not be uh, an easy fight for him to have. Uh, Bruce Lee had a couple boxing matches in his time in Hong Kong before he came to the States. Um, he was successful in both of them, but they were very amateur level. All right. Uh, and I say this as a complete Bruce Lee fan, but it is what it is. This was not pro level by any stretch of the imagination but he had been in the ring with other amateur boxers at a very early stage in his career so he did understand what that was like and i i don't think that bruce lee would think that that those two boxing matches that he had uh at age 17 and 18 would then mean that you know 15 years later uh or 10 years later i should say um he'd be able to go in there with one of the greatest to ever do it who was also a heavyweight, all right? So um, when I say this, of course, the fanboys get really upset because um, they they have this weird, uh, f a lot of fanboys are not really martial arts practitioners. So they, they think that if you say, well, I think this person might beat Bruce Lee in this situation here. Oh, well, you're not a true fan. It's the no true Scotsman fallacy. You know, if, if I don't believe that Bruce Lee was an invincible human being who could destroy everyone in two seconds with his sidekick and his and his uh, straight lead, then I'm not a real Bruce Lee fan. And uh, that's a false dichotomy. It's also other people telling you how you're supposed to honor and respect someone. And I think that the 
best way we can honor Bruce Lee is to be realistic. He was a realist. I think he would have been the first person to say he wouldn't have much of a chance against Muhammad Ali in a boxing ring. And if you don't believe that, I think you need to listen to what Bruce Lee said about boxing a little bit more, uh, with a little bit more intent and not just put on the goggles of, I'm a Bruce Lee fan, therefore Bruce Lee must be able to defeat anyone. This is this is a non sequitur, all right? Uh, if you're a fan of M any MMA fighter, most MMA fighters have lost at some point. I'm a huge Anderson Silva fan. Uh, the fact that he broke his leg against Chris Weidman and then had a couple really poor showings in his last few fights doesn't change anything for me. He's lost and even lost against a stupid Paul brother guy or whatever in boxing, right? And so it's like, but does that change what i think about him absolutely not it's okay martial arts is it's, it's a test you go back and forth you see who's the best and people are inevitably going to lose right it's just that when someone uh when you're talking about these things posthumously then people get so emotional about it it's like whether he would have beat him or not bruce lee and muhammad ali they're not with us anymore nothing is going to change all you're going to do is just make yourself angry for no reason um but if we talk about okay in a street fight, all right, where Bruce would have the ability to kick and do other things, uh, yeah, maybe it would be a little bit more even. But uh, again, Muhammad Ali is no slouch either, right? So the um, the chat GPT further went on. Bruce Lee was known for his incredible speed, agility, and striking power, as well as his philosophy of using whatever techniques work best in a given situation. He was also a skilled grappler and had training in various martial arts, including Wing Chun, Jeet Kune Do, and Jiu Jitsu. I don't know how skilled of a grappler he was. Bruce Lee knew some grappling, but uh, I think they're being a little generous saying that he's a skilled grappler. I mean, even for that time, I think he knew more grappling than most strikers. Um, but uh, I, I think that's a little going overboard comparing uh, to, you know, not just modern grapplers, but even grapplers at that time. Um, <clears throat> they're being a little generous. And uh, jujitsu, not so sure how much jujitsu he knew, maybe more judo. Uh, Muhammad Ali, on the other hand, was one of the greatest boxers of all time. With lightning-fast reflexes, footwork, and powerful punches, he was known for his ability to float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, and he had highly effective fighting method that combined athleticism, strategy, and mental toughness. In a hypothetical fight between Bruce Lee and Muhammad Ali, the outcome would depend on a number of factors, including the rules of the fight, Absolutely. But I think most rule sets would favor Muhammad Ali and his size. The size and weight of the competitors. Well, we're looking at uh, heavyweight Muhammad Ali versus a buck 25 soaking wet Bruce Lee and uh, the specific skills and strategies each fighter employed. I think if Bruce Lee was not allowed to kick and do other things, I think it would be a really rough night uh, and short night for him. And I say that with absolute reverence to Bruce Lee. And I think he'd be the first person to tell you that. Uh, even if that makes you upset, you might want to think about how that might just be your own emotion that you're reacting with, but you're not actually thinking about the fact that Bruce Lee, being a very intelligent and very reasonable person, uh, would probably not be the person to say, yeah, I could go in there and totally kill that guy. Now, if they're standing on the street, if he's confronted with Muhammad Ali, whatever, okay, that's a different story. Um, they're, the outcomes, you know, are a little bit more even because it's really about who hits first and uh, in, in, in a self-defense kind of altercation. But I don't think that's what most people are talking about. I think most people are thinking about, okay, like a back and forth between the two of them and some kind of almost like uh, kickboxing, like rule set kind of thing. And I, I, I just don't know. Also the thing, to be fair to Bruce Lee, 
Bruce Lee was never the one who made any of these claims. I feel that when all these things come up, like, oh, how would have Bruce Lee done an MMA? Or how would Bruce Lee have done against this guy or that guy or whatever? Um, and then the fan base gets so, like, eh, Bruce Lee would have killed, killed that guy in half a second or whatever, as if even if Bruce Lee couldn't beat that guy, as if that somehow negates everything that he's done, uh, his incredible uh, uh, contributions to the martial arts and philosophy and kind of opening the minds of very kind of stuck traditional martial artists. Uh, you don't have to be able to beat everyone to be a great teacher, a great innovator, a great philosopher, and a great coach. Uh, this idea that, you know, we have to deify everyone that we are into as being unbeatable, otherwise their word doesn't mean anything, well then you would only learn from the toughest person in the world who never lost a fight. Then there would kind of be only one person in the world worth learning from, that would be the person who it hypothetically could not be beat by anyone else in this world. And then that's the person that's necessarily able to teach fighting. Or maybe that person is just that way because they themselves are really good fighters. Can they really teach you? So I, I don't really accept this whole thing that like if you, if you believe in a style like Wing Chun or kickboxing or Thai boxing or whatever that then you also have to say, well, then my my Sifu or coach or sensei or whatever can beat anyone. Otherwise, the entire basis of my belief system falls apart. Martial arts is a very personal thing. When you're attacked on the street, it's not your style that's protecting you. It's not your sifu or your sensei or your coach's name. It's you, all right? You are responsible for being able to do something to protect yourself based on what you learned. And this idea that we have to create these monolithic uh, institutions like Bruce Lee, this as an undefeatable demigod of martial arts, otherwise, you don't listen to any of it. I think it's just ridiculous. Um, I, I think it's really ridiculous. Um, and then uh, the final line here in the chat GPT is ultimately it's impossible to predict who would win in a fight between Bruce Lee and Muhammad Ali. And it's more productive to appreciate the unique talents and legacies of each of these incredible athletes. And then actually that last line is really great. Why do people still have this kind of like uh, childlike, idea of uh, who can beat whom in a fight. I think it, it's fun hypotheticals, but I think those hypotheticals are more fun when you're comparing different pro athletes that you have tape on them actually fighting. Most of what we have on Bruce Lee are his films. And he would be the first to tell you that that's his theatrical take. That's not what he actually does. So you can't look at what he does in his movies and then go, okay, that's what he would do in the ring. Bruce Lee would have been the first person to tell you that's not the case. He went on record many times talking about, you know, how... If he did the fight scenes the way they would be done in real life, they would be super brutal. And uh, they wouldn't be very, it would just be kind of nasty to look at. And probably wouldn't be that entertaining. So he does it in an artful way. He said that. He's very aware of that. So you can't look at footage of Bruce's films and then compare that to fight footage of Muhammad Ali and then go, okay, yeah, well, he, Muhammad Ali's going to come with that jab and Bruce is going to just jump kick him and knock him out, right? That's ridiculous. It doesn't take into consideration the terrain, the pressure, the nerves, everything that's going on, the rule set, all of these kind of things. It's uh, uh, really ridiculous. It's, I, I find these uh, kind of uh, uh, thought experiments more interesting with professional fighters. Like if you, for example, like Muhammad Ali versus Mike Tyson, right? You have footage of Muhammad Ali fighting in the ring. You have Tyson fighting in the ring and you go, okay, what would happen if you put these two at their peak? 
I think that's a little bit easier to debate because one, you have two fighters in the same sport, same weight class, and then you kind of can get an idea and then you can debate it. And that debate is at least more interesting because you can use facts and history and um, come up with, I think, more reasonable answers to that than this kind of non-starter. And again, these things assume like as if Bruce Lee was walking around going, yeah, I could beat Muhammad Ali. As if Bruce Lee was walking around, yeah, 50 years in the future, there's going to be a thing called MMA and yeah, I could totally beat all those guys, right? Bruce isn't the one making any of these claims. Uh, for the most part, you guys are. All right, so anyway, uh, that is actually the only ones we have for ChatGPT. So uh, if you guys have other questions for ChatGPT that you want me to ask ChatGPT, take a look at the answer and then scrutinize it a little bit, um, I uh, would love to do that. Maybe we can do one or two of those in an episode. I think, though, however, when it comes to the topic of Wing Chun, uh, there's probably really not a whole lot that ChatGPT can do except scan, like, Wikipedia and just get this kind of very superficial information in there. I don't really know how deep uh, the info goes. But let us let us not forget that ChatGPT uh, did realize, not even knowing what the Kung Fu Genius podcast is, that Dre... Dr. Eisen and Dreisen may, in fact, be the same person. All right. Some very, very slick detective work. All right. So what I'm going to do is just um, discuss some questions that I have uh, had in the last few weeks written in uh, in our YouTube comments, and then we'll uh, go from there. So, hey, everyone, just want to let you know, Wing Chun Illustrated is now offering uh, we have Danny uh, just asked a few hours ago, why don't you get Guru Dan Inosanto on the podcast? Because your podcasts are the best. Well, thank you, Danny. Um, uh, at the sake of sounding repetitive or or sounding like I'm a little exasperated, at this we get this question every month, all right? Uh, at least once a month. When you get uh, Dan Inosanto on, now for longtime listeners of the podcast, you know I've answered this question actually multiple times. Um, I would love to have Dan Inosanto on the podcast. Absolutely love it. Uh, I just, uh, one, I don't actually see him doing other podcasts. I, I don't know. Maybe uh, you guys can shoot me one in the comments below. Like, in general, I don't come across like uh, Guru Dan doing podcasts in general. So I don't know if this is really something that he does. And from what I understand, I've I met him once before, but from my, what I understand, his his wife is kind of his manager. And if you want to get him to do anything, you kind of got to go through her. And uh, I don't even know her. I don't have any rapport with her. I don't know if she's going to ask me to pay him. So um, you guys make it sound a little easier than it is. It would be one thing if I was his student or something. But uh, no. And again, I've, I put this out there. No one has helped me, even though many people in the comments claim to know people and all sorts of stuff if you want guru dan Inosanto on the kung fu genius podcast and you know guru dan talk to him set it up if he says yes let me know i'll have him on right away i feel kind of weird asking because i don't have any rapport with him i only met him once he probably doesn't remember me from a uh, uh from tree bark so you know uh, i i just would be weird for me to send him an email and ask so um in any case uh we have another question here from mickey milostnik uh sifu alex uh we who come from a wing chun background we love to know more about sifu Li tin loy and the jiao ga mantis could you do some episode talking about your training some stories from jiao ga and the late grandmaster yip soi thanks for always delivering uh, well, thank you. I mean, your comment uh, puts a little pressure on me to deliver. You say, thanks for delivering. Now I have to 
deliver. Uh, well, uh, I actually have talked about uh, Sifu Lee Tinloy and Southern Mantis in various uh, episodes of the podcast. So we are now in the third year of Kung Fu Genius. And uh, for those of you uh, who want to go back and look at old episodes, uh, here on the YouTube channel, um, this isn't really helpful for the audio, for those of you who listen to this on audio, uh, but for those of you who watch this on uh, YouTube, uh, if you go to the Kung Fu Genius YouTube channel, you will see that I have playlists and I have year one, year two, and now we're in year three. So that uh, automatically makes it a little easier to scan uh, the episodes. So uh, you can sometimes tell by the uh, title of the podcast what I talk about. Now, since most of my episodes are Ask Me Anything episodes, one episode might have uh, one to ten questions, depending on how deep the questions are and how much time I feel like giving each of the questions. So um, not every title and not every subtitle or thumbnail of the episode is going to tell you everything that I talk about in the episode, unfortunately. I know you can put stuff by chapters now so people can do it. So maybe um, if you guys want to go back and start adding those little chapters to the uh, uh, to the previous podcast so that people can see when the different questions uh, come up on the timeline, I think users can, can add that into the interface. If not, just let me know. That might be helpful. But um, I have talked about Sifa Lee Tinloy before. I had a really great time. Uh, when I trained with him back in 2015. Uh, my um, interest in uh, Southern Mantis came uh, from another friend of mine uh, who uh, is a Chai Le Fut master in, um, uh, in Florida, of all places. Um, and um, his, his name is Sifu Lee. He is a Chai Le Fut master. He's the younger brother of uh, Lei Kun Hong. And um, he, uh, you know, when I go down to Florida, when I have time, I go and I see him, I visit him for dim sum, really, really nice guy. And I had a conversation with him, I would assume it was 2014. Uh, and he told me that when he was a kid growing up in Hong Kong, he saw someone from Southern Mantis get into a fight with someone. And he just said that he just saw this guy just do a short jolting movement and hit the other guy so hard, the guy basically crumpled. And it's that kind of uh, that explosive force. And he said it was very impressive. And and all these years later, he never forgot it. And so he was telling me all oh, that the Southern Mantis guys are, are very strong, very powerful. And so I kind of heard it from him. And I was like, oh, cool, interesting. And I knew, uh, and for those of you who uh, might not be familiar, um, in Chinese martial arts, there's a difference between Southern and Northern Mantis, okay? A lot of times when you say Mantis, Kung Fu people are going to think about the kind of the hooked finger version of Mantis that you've seen from a lot of Kung Fu movies, where the finger, you know, you have your index finger kind of pointing out and, and your, your forearm basically looks like the front pinchers of a uh, praying Mantis. That, for the most part, is Northern Mantis, and Northern Mantis has lots of styles from the from the Jingwu Academy, and then they have their specific mantis forms. And But that is a northern style. It's very popular in Hong Kong because there was a Jingwu Academy in Hong Kong. So many of those northern styles made their way into the southern city of Hong Kong. But that doesn't mean that those styles originated there. Now, southern mantis, uh, even though it is also a type of mantis, is unrelated to northern mantis. Um, in fact, no one is going to debate that. The northern guys know that their mantis style is totally different. And the southern guys know that their mantis style is totally different. There are only a few people, oddly enough, a friend of mine who happens to be a famous, iconic Hong Kong movie star. I'm not going to tell you who he is. 
he argued with me that Northern Mantis and Southern Mantis have the same founder. Um, but no Northern Mantis practitioner and Southern Mantis practitioner I've met has ever argued that. I only uh, got into this argument with one Kung Fu movie star uh, who said, no, 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 they're from the same, they're from the same source. They're just, you know, different branches of the same root or something like that. But um, it's pretty clear that they're actually not. Southern Mantis is really from the Hakka group of martial arts. So it bears the same DNA as White Crane with the Samtin form and uh, White Eyebrow and a lot of those short Hakka styles, very, very similar. In fact, many of them even have form names that are very similar, the Three Arrows or Three Wars or Three War Step. Like you look at the na uh, Three Arrow Step, you look at the names of the first form and it's like one or two characters a little bit different. They're basically from the same source. And so Southern Mantis is is, is really a Hakka martial art. Sivu Lee Tin Loi is a retired police officer in Hong Kong, uh, one of the most outstanding disciples of uh, the uh, late Grandmaster Yip Soi. Uh, not the only one, uh, Grandmaster Yip Soi had um, many uh, very skillful disciples, including his son. Uh, it's the rare, uh, rare occasion where the son of the Grandmaster is also quite skillful because the fact that someone is related to the grand, you know, the fact that your father is a famous martial artist or whatever, doesn't mean that you are now somehow imbued with these skills automatically. But um, Yipsoi's son uh, is uh, very skillful in Southern Mantis. Um, so, um, you know, they have a lot of highly qualified people there. Uh, I learned from Sivali Tinloi. Um, I had seen some videos with him. He was very impressive. When I met him in person, he was even more impressive. Very stern, very serious, no smile, uh, real old school. And the training I did with him uh, lasted for about two weeks, but it was very intense. I was training every day, private training, and also doing his group class. It was brutal. It was absolutely brutal, but I loved it. And I got to spend some time with him, and he was really, um, he was really very sweet and taught me a lot. And uh, I learned a lot about tendon strength training and how you can improve your tendon and soft tissue strength, especially for things like grips and pulling. And uh, a lot of those exercises I still do to this day. And I feel that they were really quite beneficial in terms of short force and all of that. Uh, in terms of the actual physical style though, um, I'm still a Wing Chun guy at heart. I, I prefer the way Wing Chun reacts to punches and things coming, coming at me, but that's no knock on Southern Mantis. It, it's more maybe a knock on the limited exposure I had to that style. Uh, but Siva Lee Loy is an absolute badass. Very skillful, very, very scary guy. And I've said it before, I said it in one of my books. Um, Siva Lee Loy, I think, is probably pound for pound one of the strongest people I ever met, including grapplers in general are very strong because it, when you when you do grappling when you're holding on when you're wrestling when you do those kind of activities you get um what's known as odd angle strength so wrestlers and grapplers are really strong in all sorts of different angles and planes of movement because you have to be when you're grappling and so in general a seasoned grappler is going to usually be much stronger than most other people their size so like pound for pound, grapplers just have tremendous grip strength and strength in general, core strength and all of that. But Siva Lee Tinloi, I have to admit, is probably pound for pound one of the strongest guys I ever met, including for my grappling friends. When he grabs a hold of you and squeezes, uh, you just feel like he's just squeezing a 
tube of toothpaste and your hand is going to pop off. He's just, he's really that powerful. Very, very impressive. Would not want to mess with him at all. So uh, that's about all I have to say about that. I have talked about it before. You can find out a little bit more in various episodes, but uh, great question. Um, I I uh, really appreciated my time with Sifu Lee Jin Loy. Um, okay, so we have a, uh, a plea here from Dennis Davidov uh, to have uh, Mikey read the Ashita Kim book. All right, so I have my Ashita Kim book is in uh, storage right now. I'm going to be uh, moving into a new apartment, so I've been slowly moving my books out into storage. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with New York, uh, New York is a very difficult place to move um, because uh, one, apartments are so expensive here. But also if you find an apartment, uh, the moment you find it, you have to be ready to sign the paperwork because if you don't, you wait five minutes, someone else will take it. So basically when it comes time to move, yeah, if, if you're smart as a New Yorker, you have to be like ready to be there the next day. So in, you know, trying to get a new place, I'm still staying in the same area here. I've actually moved a lot of my stuff into storage. So when it's time to go, I can go move my stuff and I'm there. Uh, and so that book is in storage right now. But I have an Ashita Kim book called The Amorous Adventures of Ashita Kim. Talked about it, if not, not on the last episode, but the episode before last. Uh, it's basically a pure fantasy fiction where Ashita Kim, who's a well-known fraudster in martial arts, basically made up this whole story about him being like a spy in Africa and all of his uh, adventures with the ladies and stuff. And it's hysterical. I had the book a very long time ago. And one of my students who was an um, actor, uh, he used to do readings of it. He, he, um, he's now a Hollywood stuntman. But back in those days, he was a theater actor here in New York. And he used to, in, you know, in a very Shakespearean kind of way, open up Ashita, the amorous adventures of Ashita Kim and then belt out some lines from there. But, you know, doing it in a very serious kind of mid-Atlantic accent, uh, performing it as if it were like a serious piece of literature, and it was hysterical. But since we have Mikey with his authentic English accent, uh, maybe we should have him do a couple readings from uh, Ashita Kim's uh, book. So uh, that would be kind of funny. We can do that, uh, do that at some point. Um, okay, so what else do we have here? I got a lot of comments on the uh, Shaolin myths and uh, people asked about the other book that I had read about uh, Shaolin martial arts, which is the uh, book by Peter Lorge, which is uh, Chinese martial arts. Um, this is the Shaolin monastery book by Mayor Shahar. I talked about um, this is the one that I'm going through right now because everyone's like, oh, this is the real non plus ultra, you know, totally uh, researched uh, history of Shaolin. And if you look how I read books, I, you know, I make copious notes. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm a very, I suppose what you would say, an active reader. Um, I started the book, make so every paragraph, I write a recap and I underline stuff and I make references so that when I go back, I read my notes, I scan, I remember all the main points. Um, I'm not done with it. So again, I uh, actually held off on finishing it because I am learning a little bit about history uh, on how to do proper historical research, how to judge whether claims are true. Uh, and so I decided to take a break from the Shaolin Monastery book and actually study basic history. Obviously, I'm not a historian. I'm a martial arts instructor and enthusiast. 
And But we have a lot of claims, even in this episode, the claims on the historicity of certain characters in Wing Chun, on the historicity of the Shaolin Temple, on where Chinese martial arts came from. And uh, I realize I need to go back to school, so to speak, uh, take some courses to learn the basics of historical research. Not that I'm going to consider myself a historian, but I think you need to at least know the basics so you can start to be a little bit more critical about what people uh, say as claims. So I'm going to take a course on his history, and then I'm going to continue reading Mir Shahar's book, but with an eye for looking for the whole, how do you judge whether claims are true or accurate and go, going back and doing due diligence on that. But I believe that the, a, a lot of people ask me, I should say, about the other book that I had read before, which is called The Chinese Martial Arts, uh, which is by Peter Lorge. And I found that a much more uh, unbiased book where he's just kind of really goes into the history of Chinese martial arts in general, and he's not trying to support any particular story or whatever. Uh, I have to reserve judgment on the Shaolin Monastery book, but it does seem like most of it is, it's it's not pushing back on the pretty bold claims of myths uh, from the Shaolin Temple. It just kind of reports it and it says, well, I got it from this book, um, as opposed to saying, well, yeah, but is that true? Where are the contemporary uh, sources that are, you know, helping to, to uh, legitimize those claims. It's, just, it's, it's kind of not there so far, but I'm going to hold off on that book for now. Um, and so the uh, people were asking about that, that Peter Lorge book. I have a question here from Stephen Lees. KFG, can you recommend a Hong Kong shop or builder in the area of custom solid dummies on a free stand? JKD model would be my first choice. Thanks. So I answered, uh, there is a, uh, uh, a Wing Chun maker here in the States. Uh, his website is Wing Chun Dummies. Uh, that's D-U-M-M-Y-S dot com. And uh, I believe his last name is Bajika. He makes um, custom wooden dummies, basically with uh, all sorts of different frames and stands and body types and all that kind of stuff. And you can even tell him what you want and he can build it that way. Uh, I ordered one stand for him for my Gusang dummy and the stand is really, really good. So he does solid work. If you go to his website, you will see um, uh, he has all sorts of different dummies, freestand, full frames, stand whatever like all the stuff you're looking for um it's not you obviously the, the Stephen lee's here just asked me for a recommendation but uh, i'll give a cup a little bit of extra information on this kind of wooden dummy thing um custom dummies are great jkd dummies are great and if you want a custom dummy or a jkd dummy definitely go to uh wingchundummies.com and you know see what they have there and and, and go but uh, personal recommendations. So I'm an old school Wing Chun dummy guy. I don't like all these fancy spinning dummies, multiple arms, all the, the kind of gimmicky stuff. I'm like, a, give me a spring frame dummy or a slat frame dummy and I'm good. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the freestanding dummy. A lot of freestanding dummies have problems. Uh, stay, standing still, you sometimes have to put weights to hold the thing down. Um, and often because the dummy has to go all the way into the floor, that can actually mess up your stance insertion into the stance of the dummy behind the leg because now you have a big, goofy, freestanding stand right in the middle where you would otherwise be able to insert your leg. So, um, but most people aren't doing the classical form. Most people don't even really properly learn Wing Chun when they buy a dummy. So usually what they're doing on the dummy doesn't matter. I'm kind of like 
I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the wrong audience here. I tell people who buy, who want to buy a freestanding dummy. Yeah, but it's not good for the proper footwork and this, that, and the other thing. But the joke is most people who buy a freestanding dummy are not really interested in learning the classical wooden dummy form or whatever. So it might be not pre the, the whatever the opposite of preaching to the choir is. Right. Um, so I'm not a big fan of freestanding dummies. Also, not only does the base of the freestanding dummy get in the way of hitting it uh, and stepping into it, which is a big part of how we do things in Wing Chun. But because it's weighted on the floor, when you hit it, it, it it's going to move like this. It's going to tip. Kind of the opposite of what a heavy bag does. When you hit a heavy bag, it swings from the bottom out. When you hit these dummies, it's going to swing this way. All right, It's going to move like that. And that's not really the feeling that you want. A spring frame dummy, where it's on a spring, is going to give you that shock absorption and a little bit of torsion for the side movements. A slat frame dummy is going to give you that feedback when you hit it this way. Uh, but the, you know, the freestand dummies doesn't give you the proper Wing Chun feedback. Um, now, of course, again, the joke is most people who buy a freestanding dummy are not actual Wing Chun practitioners. They might either be a JKD practitioner or just someone that likes the dummy or saw the dummy in a movie and they're going to teach themselves whatever they want anyway. So it's just like, it's one of those things. An ex, a, a Wing Chun expert would never buy a freestanding dummy. Uh, so uh, that's my only little caveat there. Now, if you're interested in a proper... Learn Ting Wing Chun dummy, uh, like the full frame one or the spring frame one. Uh, we actually sell those. Um, I have uh, a manufacturer in, in China that makes uh, these dummies and uh, we can ship it directly to you. Um, makes it exactly according to the Learn Ting design. And you just hit me up, shoot me a message and I'll put you uh, in touch with my head office and you can buy those from us. But those are like real high quality, proper Wing Chun dummies. Uh, freestanding dummies are generally considered more like kind of cheaper toys but maybe at this uh website that i recommended maybe they have some really awesome new version of the freestanding dummy which is just uh the bee's knees um okay so uh michael piatic asks what about cynthia rothrock as a revolving co-host Sure, I'll just give Cynthia a call and be like, hey, you want to be the co-host of the pod, uh, Kung Fu Genius podcast every now and again? No, I've met Cynthia Rothrock before. She's very good friends with uh, Sifu Vincent Lin, who's a very good friend of mine. But her being good friends with Sifu Vincent Lin doesn't mean she's automatically my super good friend. She's been to the school. I've met her a couple times. She's absolutely lovely. Um, but, uh, you know, she does these things for a living. Uh, I'm going to have to start paying my co-hosts now. Uh, I'm not even sure she would do it. I would love to have her as a guest, though. Um, but yeah, uh, I think you guys over-exaggerate the amount of power and pull that the Kung Fu Genius has. All right, so what else do we have here? Uh, okay, as a follow-up to the discussion on Wing Chun books, would it be possible to discuss some of the books written by Bruce Lee's students, such as James DeMille, James Yim Lee, and Jesse Glover? How did they compare to the other books on Chinese martial arts at the same time? And do any of them have value today beyond historical curiosity? And that was by Pietro Bembo, one word. Uh, great question. Yeah, I did uh, two episodes ago talk about, you know, my uh, talk about mainly about the Long Tang Wing Chun books, but I also talked a little bit about how I feel about books in general, which even here this is just my current reading stack. You can kind of see I'm a big kind of book nerd and I like to read all books about Wing Chun, including those from lineages that I'm not particularly a fan of or what I just read everything. I consume everything. 
um, because it's just good for historical context and ideas. And sometimes, you know, you read a book in a, uh, you read a book about a lineage that's not yours and you still pick out one or two things like, oh, that's an interesting take or uh, I see what they're doing here. Um, maybe the way we do it in my style might be better for me, but I see that they also have this and this is another way you can attack this. So all of these things, like Bruce Lee said, all knowledge ultimately means self-knowledge. But now I've been asked about some of the books by Bruce Lee's students. Uh, the James DeMiles books, uh, I have all of them, uh, all of his uh, Wing Chun Do books. I find them uh, very interesting. I think that they are a really good encapsulation of the main things that James DeMille took from his training with Bruce Lee. Very kind of forward pressure-based way of doing chi uh power punch, drop step kind of idea. And, uh, you know, full emphasis on that spring load concept from the rear leg with the chi cell. And uh, really good. I like James DeMille's books. The late James DeMille, um, I uh, would highly recommend them. Uh, I find it's good to look at some of those Seattle era students because that'll give you a little bit more of an idea of what Bruce Lee understood on the Wing Chun side. Because when you look at some of the Jeet Kune Do stuff later, you're looking at something that he had developed with ideas from fencing and boxing and other martial arts and put that together. Uh, but if you really want to get an idea for, well, what did Bruce Lee really understand in terms of Wing Chun? How did he present the material that he learned in Hong Kong? You kind of got to look at the early Seattle period, guys, because they're going to be closer to what Bruce Lee was doing, or at least what he understood from his time in Hong Kong uh, before the kind of the pre-Jeet Kune Do phase. Uh, James E.M. Lee, um, you know, his famous books, obviously the Green Wing Chun book, which was written by Bruce Lee. Uh, he's just the technical editor, but really he wrote that book. You can you can hear Bruce Lee's voice throughout that book, uh, but he let James E.M. Lee be the author of that book so that he could earn some coin on that, uh, mainly to pay for his cancer treatment. So really, really sweet uh, gesture from Bruce Lee. Um, when you look at that book there, I mean, it, it's again, that that is a really interesting book because you see the Siunam Tao form essentially as Bruce Lee presented it. So that's really good for historical curiosity to see, okay, what did the Siunam Tao look like that Bruce Lee was teaching? It's in there. What were his ideas about uh, Wing Chun theory, concept of facing? There are a lot of things there that you would find almost no disagreement in between the various schools of Wing Chun. And then there's some other things in there, like this immovable elbow concept, which you could go, mm, this might not be a totally fleshed out version of this theory, but at least it gives you some idea of what he knew. Uh, and then finally, Jesse Glover's books. Uh, I love Jesse Glover's books the most out of all of the Bruce Lee students because the um, they're written absolutely with no pretense of design or poetry in the language. Uh, they kind of like look like they've been clanked together on a typewriter, printed together in his basement and sent to you. There's no hardcore editing or anything like that. And Jesse Glover is a, was a very straight shooter in terms of uh, explaining stuff. So this no poetic language there's no you really don't have the feeling like he's exaggerating anything for the sake of that he's a very straight shooter if you ever heard him speak you, you, you especially in old videos you can hear he's kind of very monotone very very straight shooter he's not someone who's really prone seems prone to exaggeration i like the jesse glover books because of all the books he really tells the most about the stories that bruce lee told him about his training partners back in hong kong uh, Jesse Glover also has a has one of his books where he 
goes through lesson by lesson what he learned from Bruce Lee. So you can see like on lesson one, he did this. Lesson two, he did this. Lesson three. So you kind of have almost like a syllabus of what Bruce taught Jesse Glover at that time. And uh, there's lots of great stories and accounts there. I think those books were more interesting than most of the Chinese martial art books at that time, because most of the Chinese martial art books at that time were just, you know, the first chapter, some very generic history about Kung Fu. And then the second chapter, usually warm ups from the Sifu, you know, knee bends, that kind of stuff. The third chapter, some long, complicated form. And then the final chapter, some very kind of staged applications. And there you go. Um, whereas Bruce's books uh, and the books of his students, uh, or I should say Bruce's books, it's really only the um, uh, the Chinese Kung Fu book in, and the Wing Chun book, I guess, are the only real books that Bruce Lee wrote. Um, he at least seems to try to go into it a little bit more deeply with theories and concepts and philosophy. And Jesse Glover's book really gets into the weeds with the stories and the nitty gritty of what was taught. And um, so I find that actually they held up not only well against the books at that time, but even against many of the books that have come since. The Chinese Kung Fu books all kind of follow the same formula. Generic history, some warm-ups, some form, and some staged applications, and some weak glossary in the back. And Bruce's books, at least at that time, tried to give a little bit more depth, and I can definitely, um, definitely appreciate that. Okay, uh, time for one more question. Uh, yes, we have another one from Shioken. What is the true origins of Wing Chun Chat GPT? Well, I already did ask uh, that question. So uh, Chat GPT is just going to give you kind of Wikipedia level stuff on that. Last question. Devane, uh, the Wing Chun Kun by Leung Teng was a seriously dangerous book. I had one with a red cover, revised edition, bought in 1990. It had extra tough plastic cover with sharp edges. If you were reading it and slipped it out of your hands, it could fall and cut off one of your limbs. Yes, that's true. Siva Lerngtang had these pretty brutal dust jackets on there that were kind of dangerous. On the other extreme, James DeMiles', James DeMiles Tao of Wing Chun Do books I just discussed. Uh, I used to see them in various martial arts shops in London. It was broken into pieces. After some time, I saw a fresh set of books. I bought volume one or two or more. I don't think I made it home before the binding snap, all of them in pieces. Yeah, those books tended to fall apart a little bit. Uh, unfortunately, uh, let's maybe get another one for the final one here. That was a little bit more of a comment than a question. Um, it's always fun scrolling through the comments and seeing how people go back and forth. Like a comment, I'll look, I'll like it, and then I just go on with my life, and I'll come back, and there'll be like 10 comments on there, people going back and forth. Okay, uh, here was a, a good question I got from Kung Fu Curbs. It was, how would you anglicize in written form the way Lut is correctly pronounced? In your book, you still spell it as Lut and write it Lut 1, or is it Lut? Um, okay, um, thank you in advance. Uh, yeah, I talked about uh, a, a few weeks ago in one of the episodes that Lut Lut means the hands are free or the hands are not connected to the hands of your opponent. There are many different ways to kind of define exactly what Lut means. It could be an ephemeral moment in a fight where your hand is freed. That is Lut Tso. Lut can mean more of a freestyle fighting where hands are not touching. Uh, Lut can also be a type of Chi Sao sparring where one hand is freed momentarily. This, Lutsao is a it's a bit of a nebulous term, uh, and it can it can be defined differently depending on the context, um, but it should be pronounced 
not Lazo, and I made a joke a few weeks ago about, like, in Germany, I would say Lazo, because that's how the Germans pronounce it, and then when I tried to tell that to my Cantonese friends, they thought I was saying spicy hand, but then uh, Kung Fu Curbs right, rightly noticed that I still spell it L-A-T, which looks like lat, but in the Yale system of phonetization, a single A sound, like if you wrote L-A-T, or if you wrote, like, P-A-T, or uh, S-A-T, it would be, S-A-T would be sup. L-A-T would be L, and then it's supposed to be almost like a U sound, but when you have two A's, like L-A-A-T, it would be lot, or you had B-A-A-T, so the double A would mean bot, single A would be but, so that's why in the Yale system, the single A is kind of shorter, it is a U sound, that's why I still use the traditional spelling, because in the Yale system, that's actually the right way to spell it, it's just that L-A-T should not be translated as lot so it's not lot so you're not practicing spicy hands you're practicing freestyle hands lot so free hands okay cool well that was a lot of fun and that's all i gotta say about that all right everyone well i hope you enjoyed that episode of the kung fu genius as always don't forget to like this episode subscribe to the kung fu genius hit that bell for notifications and if you have any questions ask me on a future episode of the kung fu genius go ahead and write those in the comments below and as always i'll see you guys next time Word is I'm a kung fu genius Technique speaks for me, not lineage Forget Jet Li, cause I'm the one Many call me Sifu, but to you I'm Si Kung And I produce masters, you surpassed us Your kung fu stiffer than corpse and caskets City Wing Chung is the house I built Violate the gate and your blood gets spilt Alex Richter, always the victor Lots of gems, lots of Who would win in a fight? No, hold on, that sucks I had the whole thing in my head And then I like forgot it while I started saying it Ah <sighs> I'm still going to give Dre and Mikey shit.